0: I'm going to invite you that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're continuing here this series as we're going through the book of Philippians, looking at how to have joy in full or fullness of joy, how to cultivate a life of abundant joy. And today, what Paul is teaching the Philippians here as we end chapter 1 is having joy in the presence of your adversaries. Not simply how to have joy, but how to have joy when you're facing opposition. Last week, we looked at this chapter and we saw that he was teaching us how to have joy in the midst of an uncertain future, that we would not worry, but we would trust in the Lord. Now, it is, this is a very a subject that many people struggle with the area of joy. The non believer, because they're surrounded in a very dark world. And sometimes the believer, because we take our eyes off of Jesus. And as Christians, we mention that love and joy should be the number one characteristic of the Christian that is growing, that they're loving and that they have joy. For many of us, when we have a hard time for it, we go from the joy of our salvation to the chore of our salvation. Have you seen someone that they think everything is a chore, everything makes them upset? Well, we need to understand what this epistle is telling us so that we can grow even while we are experiencing warfare. Because it's too easy in warfare to start to complain. It's too easy in warfare to become angry or become frustrated or discouraged, defeated. What do we like to do when things go wrong? We like to blame other people. <laughs> and we have to realize as we look at God's grace that you've already received more than what you deserve, and we should be grateful in Christ, not entitled. How many of us here are grateful with what we've received in Christ Jesus? Amen. Amen. So Paul is saying here that he is a man that is not living for himself but is living for Christ. If you like writing notes, title this as the message today, Cultivating a Life of Abundant Joy. Cultivating a Life of Abundant Joy. This is a man who said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He doesn't live a life that is self-conscious. He's living a life that is God conscience, that is others' conscience. This is why he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not living for himself. He's living for the Lord. There are many times that we as Christians, we like to say the same thing. For me, to live is Christ but to, and to die is gain, but don't make me serve in the children's ministry. We must deny ourselves, surrender to the Lord, and say, I'm not living For myself, I'm living for Christ. And as he said, that he was struggling with this conflict of these two options whether he wanted to be with Christ presently, or was it more needful for him to deposit, to encourage, to lead, to feed the flock there in Philippians? So he's wrestling in prayer with these two options, not knowing which to go to, not knowing which to select. As he wrestles in prayer, he praises God for guidance but even we ourselves, as we're wrestling in prayer about two options that maybe are before you, what are, what, are, what should we ask ourselves? Ask yourself, number one, what is more Christ-like? What is more Christ-like? If, if the Lord has you at a crossroads like he had Paul, ask yourself, what is more Christ-like? What about this? What is more important? What will advance the proclamation of the gospel more? Because when you ask yourself these questions, you're your personal priorities start to diminish in preferences. And then Christ is exalted, and then he's honored. So he's been telling us in chapter 1 that, that we are saints enjoying fellowship with God. Then we are servants sharing in the furtherance of the gospel. And today he says you're soldiers defending the faith of the gospel. That we would be so united that we would be able to defend the gospel in the face. Or in the midst of opposition. Now, how do we do that? As we rely on the sword, as we rely on prayer and the Holy Spirit. So he's explained to them that there are three essentials that we must know for victory in the battle to protect the faith. And they are this number one, consistency. Would you write that down? Consistency. Number two, cooperation, that the church would be united. And then number three, confidence. So what is he saying? He's saying that the Philippian church should be unyielding to compromise and to opposition of the enemy. They should be undivided. They should cooperate. And they should also be unafraid of the tactics of the devil. They should be confident. Now, Paul longed to see this church. He's saying, if I'm released, I want to go and visit you. But he understood that it was only God's opinions that mattered. And it was only God's itinerary that would come to pass in his own life. So he's saying here from verses 27 to verse 30, if I delay to come to you, I want to give you specific instructions for victory. While I'm not around, I need you to know this, that you would be consistent, that you would cooperate. And also finally, he tells them that you would have confidence. So we're going to begin there in Philippians 1, verse 27, and I will invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. As we read from verse 27 to verse 30, I'll read the odd verses and you read the even verses out loud together. It says this, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Lord, we come before you once again, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we approach it with the reverence, and the respect that it deserves. We pray, Lord, that today we would know how to stand, how to have joy in the midst of opposition, that we would not become discouraged because of the enemy or because of distractions or because of oppositions that are coming our way but that we would be faithful doing that which you called us to do. So speak to us, Lord, strengthen us through your word in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. You may be seated. Now he begins here talking about the consistency in the lives of the Philippian Christians while he's away. And he begins with consistency because he's giving a priority to their character. Understand that. The priority takes place in the character of the life of the Christians. So he begins in verse 27, and he uses this word, only. You can circle that word in your Bible because he's giving it importance. Only, or above all, or he's saying, what is most important is that you let your conduct. He's saying, what is most important is that you would conduct yourself. Do you see how he goes here to the matter of their behavior? The word conduct yourself is the word politomai in the Greek, and it comes from the word that we use of politics or police. It's related to this word because what he's saying is behave as a good citizen is supposed to behave. Would you behave as a good citizen of where you live? In fact, it speaks of someone that is discharging now their obligations of their own citizenship. And he's telling them this because Philippi, if you know and study it, it it held a privileged status of a Roman colony. So what it meant is that they enjoyed the benefits of the protection of Rome. And as this Roman colony, they knew that they had certain Roman citizen responsibilities that they needed to adhere to. So he tells them, because you are citizens of heaven, now he speaks of, That you would understand that even while we're here on earth, you should behave as citizens of heaven. Your citizenship of heaven, I want you to know this, takes priority over anything else. That you are a citizen of heaven. How many times do we pride ourselves of where we are from? Of our nationality, of our culture? I want you to know this. Nothing takes precedence over you being a citizen of heaven. Because you've come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he's shifting their perspective and their priority from earthly to a heavenly one that you would know that your values, that your worldview, that you would know that your lifestyle would be one that conducts itself as a good citizen of heaven. Now, notice the word he uses following because he says it would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, he's saying, I'm telling you that your conduct would be worthy or that it would be. Now, one, that is put on the balance or on the scales of a balance and that your conduct would match your calling. Back in the day when they would measure something or the worth and value of something, they would put it on scales and they would balance it. And that word worthy that he refers to, it refers to balancing the scales. So what is he telling them? He's saying, only let your practice match your proclamation. Do you see how important that is even for the Christian today? That as we're going through opposition, as we're facing warfare, that our practice would match our proclamation. That our conduct would be according or consistent to our calling. So he's saying here, live a consistent Christian life. I want you to know this as believers, we should never live beneath our theology. What does that mean? That we should never live beneath what we say that we believe. Because what you believe determines what you behave. Would you remember that this morning? What you believe determines what you behave. In fact, wrong belief ultimately means a wrong life. And here he's saying, put your life on the scale and that it would be equally balanced in conduct to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this important to Paul? Because our lives are sometimes the only gospel that people in the world around us see. Your life is the only gospel that maybe your neighbor will ever see. Your life is the only gospel message that maybe that person at work will ever see, your family member that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And he's saying, let your life be consistent to the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The good news of salvation. I want you to know this because it's important as Christians that you would know how to explain the gospel. What is the gospel? How, how would you explain it? If someone asks you, what is the good news of salvation? The gospel, in essence, is three things focus on that Christ died, that he was buried, but then he rose again, the resurrection. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And any other gospel is a false gospel. It means that sinners can become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in him alone. Not by Christ plus something else. Not by their good works. Now, here he tells them that because he knows that many would depart from the faith or from the gospel. Do you know that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 that you will know that we are living in the last days Because in the last days and the latter times, many will depart from the faith. That's how you know today we're living in the last days. Because many people are departing from the faith. So he says, do not depart from the faith. In fact, what he's saying here in verse 27, our lives must have proof that they have been touched by the gospel. How would you know that if your life has any proof that you have been touched by the gospel, ask yourself, is my life filled with love? Because love is a sign that Christ has transformed your life. Ask yourself the question, is my life filled with hope? Because the gospel is filled with hope. Or would you say, is my life filled with holiness? Because the gospel is filled with holiness. It's filled with forgiveness. So he's saying, make sure that your conduct is consistent to your calling so that you don't now yield to the pressure of Rome to live under their standard instead of the standard of Christ, that you know that you're held to a higher standard. Today, I want you to know this as you've come in. Because you know the truth, you are held to a higher standard. You can't walk away today and say, well, I didn't know. Yes, you did. (laughs) You're finding out right now. And the most important weapon against the enemy, it's not a powerful message. It's not a a powerful gathering. Do you want to know the most important weapon against the enemy is when Christians live consistent lives, holy lives, lives of integrity. Paul told the church of Ephesians in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, that you would live a life of holiness, a life of now purity, a life that pleases God. Peter told the church that was being persecuted in 2 Peter 3.14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, we have a lot to look forward to because we're going to heaven. But as we look forward to these things, be diligent, be faithful to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless that you would today as you wait for the coming of Christ be found blameless, that your conduct would match your calling. What does the Apostle John tell the church in 1 John chapter 1? He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we can say that we have a relationship with God, but we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what happens here? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. We are called to live consistent lives. Lives that bring honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a life that is compromising. Not a life that is living one way on Sunday, but a different way on Monday. That lives one way at church, but differently at home. It was John Bunyan who wrote that well-known book, The Pilgrim's Progress, who said this. A man can be a saint abroad and a devil at home. Think about how true that is. That everywhere else they know you as a believer, but not in your own home. We need to live consistent lives. But he also speaks of cooperation. Notice the second half of verse 27. That the evidence of the gospel comes as an evidence in the life of Christians when they are united, when they're truly living accountable to the truth. So it says in verse 27, notice... So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. He's saying, I want you to live a consistent life that is worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, it doesn't matter where I'm at, I may hear how you're doing. He wanted them to know that they were accountable to the truth. He wanted them to know that he was holding them accountable and that he would check up on them. It doesn't matter if I'm not with you. I want you to behave according to your belief. Now, how many times do you remember when you were maybe in high school, in grade school, growing up, that your favorite times of school was when the teacher didn't show up, right? And the teacher didn't come. There was was an immediate now sign of joy in the classroom. And what Paul is saying, I may not be there right now, but your life must be consistent to the message that you speak of to the same message that you teach and that you preach, that your proclamation would be consistent to your behavior. So he's saying, even though I'm not there, I want you to know that you must have a good testimony. Now, he exhorts them in a few ways in regards to how to have this good testimony. He says this, the good testimony begins on you standing. Would you remember that? Note that today, how you stand. Then also, your sharing, how you're sharing with one another. Number three, how you're striving. And then finally, how you're suffering. Are you doing it in a way that honors Christ? So notice what he says there. In the second half of verse 27, that I may hear of your affairs, that number one, you're standing, or that you are standing fast. You see, here he speaks of purity. That I may hear that you are standing firmly. That you're not being moved by the outside worldly influences that you're not being moved or influenced by that co-worker at your work that is influencing you to compromise your convictions or by a friend or by, by anyone whose convictions are not consistent to the truth. Stand firm or stand your ground. Notice he here he speaks of a soldier who's staying at his post. He's saying, don't move from your post, Christians. Don't leave your guard stand at your position even with opposition even with temptation don't run now you may face opposition you may face persecution you may even be tempted as you're undergoing warfare notice what he says stand firmly do you know when someone goes into combat there's something such as a fighter stance what does a fighter stance do? When, it, when, when a fighter is ready to fight, he goes in a fighter stance. What does that do to him? He stands firmly. He's not going to be easily moved. And he stands firmly for stability there. So he's saying, I want you to stand firmly where he's speaking of their loyalty to the Lord, their spiritual character, that you would not compromise in godliness or in holiness, in, in obedience, that you would resist the devil church. That you would resist temptation. That you would resist an opportunity of corruption in your character. What does Paul tell the church of Ephesians when he's speaking of the armor of God? And we studied this a few months ago. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The same word that he's using here to the Philippians. Stand firmly. Don't compromise now. Some of us today need to hear that that we've been allowing compromise in our lives because of opposition. I want you to know this. Discouragement is not a license for disobedience. Just because you're discouraged doesn't mean you can disobey. And here he's telling them, although you're facing opposition, notice this, stand firmly. Now, this is how he tells them to stand in purity. But now he speaks of after purity, there comes unity. Unity. We must never compromise purity in the name of unity. So he says, first purity, now unity, sharing. And how do they share? Notice that verse, it tells us, in one spirit and with one mind. This is what we are called to as Christians, to share one spirit and to share in one mind. If we are to overcome the devil, how are we to do it in unity? The church is called to stand united, not only to stand but to stand united, to stand in one spirit, in harmony. What does that mean? That the church should avoid backbiting or gossiping or division or stirring up trouble, complaining, fighting, nagging about one another always, or blaming one another. Any type of negative behavior that, that, that comes and hinders fellowship or bruises unity, we should stay away from. How many times have you seen that if the enemy does not come from the outside in. You know what the enemy is going to try to do to destroy the church? From the inside out. And here he's saying, I want you to stand in one spirit. Do not be divided. In fact, he says with one mind that you would share one mind. It means one purpose or united with one common goal, that we all have the same goal. We all want to arrive at the same place. That the gospel is front and center of the church. Do you remember when Paul was talking to the carnal church in, in Corinth? And he wrote to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, tells us this. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That not everyone's speaking a different message. That the church is united, whether he's present or he's absent, he's saying here, that there would be no division among you, but that you should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment did you know that we are not called to be alone god has not called us he's not created us that we would be alone he's called us to be together in a church to hold each other accountable to encourage one another to edify one another so he says that you would stand together but not only stand together also notice this in verse 27 striving together for the faith of the gospel that's an amazing word right there striving We're standing, we're sharing, and we're striving together. The word striving is that word sunathlel. It means to engage in a competition or together in an athletic contest. Just imagine a team of players coming together, and they're engaging together. They all have the same goal. What do they want? Victory. They want to win. So what does he say? Pursue together. Strain together, fight together against a common enemy. The church today has to remind themselves that we are not one another's enemies. That's what the devil wants us to think, that we are fighting one another. We're not fighting one another. We're on the same team. (laughs) And if God is for us, know this, then who can be against us? But we need to be submitted to that. There will be no division. Notice in chapter 2, he speaks about it again. Because there was these two women in the church that they just couldn't get along. I know we don't have that problem here at this church. And they couldn't get along. And it says your division, your backbiting, your gossip is hindering the work of the ministry because you keep talking about one another in a negative way. What would happen if we spent less time talking about ourselves or about one another and then started talking to other people about Jesus? You know what's going to happen? People are going to start getting saved. And we're going to see many come to know Jesus Christ. So he expresses this word striving as teamwork now to engage, to help advance the faith through now the preaching of the gospel. This word striving, it also talks about those that are in battle, soldiers that are like gladiators, that are blood, sweat, and tears, thinking about that together in the trenches. That implies courage and fighting to finish. So many times we compromise the unity of the church because of our personal preference, because of what we think we need in the church. And how many times have you heard, or even you yourself maybe have been that person, you went to a church and you left the church, you said, you know what? I didn't like the worship at that church. Well, let me tell you It wasn't for you. It was for the Lord, the worship. (laughs) I didn't like the children's ministry or the pastor said something that I didn't like. (laughs) You know what's important? I love what's been said before. In essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, there must be liberty. But in all things, that there would be charity, that there would be Love that we wouldn't put our preferences before the unity of the church. That is why many churches are divided because people put their preference before the unity of the church. And this is what he's saying, striving for what? It's unity with the purpose. It's not simply unity. It's not uniformity. It's unity with the purpose. Notice verse 27, for the faith of the gospel, strive together, not only for your individual faith, but on behalf of the truth, Of Christianity, the common faith. You see, we should not let division hinder the work that Christ is doing. We should not put God's work on hold because of division. How many times have you seen God's work be put on hold that the Holy Spirit is grieved because people just simply can't get along? That's why, as a Christian, you shouldn't put your eyes on yourself and other people. Don't be overly sensitive. Don't get overly offended easily. And what was happening here, he's saying there's too much work to be done for Christ to be arguing over non-essentials, to be taking sides for no reason. Do you want to know why there's division in the church oftentimes? and I'm not talking about just this place. I'm talking about the church overall. The reason why there's division within believers is this. Everybody has their own agenda. Be careful when you have an agenda. Be careful when you have a preference. You know what you have to do? That brings division in the ministry. You know what you have to do? Stop, give up that agenda. The only agenda in the body of Christ is this, is love. That is the only agenda that we should look. Love is the agenda. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that they are my disciples. By what? By the love that they have for one another. You see, this is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to see internal divisions in the church what is his strategy to divide the church and then conquer the church so that instead of our eyes being on the needs of the people instead of our eyes being on the lost on evangelism on the furtherance of the gospel you know what our eyes have become on on ourselves and it's very sad Jesus when he was praying for the disciples in John chapter 17 he says that they may be one not many not divided but they may be one as you father and I in me and I am in you, that there would be a unity. and In essence, we would be one together. Just think about how much can we accomplish as the church for the Lord, how much we can truly do for the Lord if we were talking to other people about Christ and not about ourselves. We would reach the entire city of Downey. We'd reach Alley County for Jesus. And we came together with one common goal, to see the enemy be defeated, these strongholds come down because we were striving together for the gospel. We're not striving against one another. We're striving for the same cause. Do you remember in 3 John, when John is writing his epistle to the churches? There was a problem in the church because a man Diotrephes. Diotrophies. What happened is that he loved to have the preeminence. And he wanted to be first. He, he, he didn't receive from John or he didn't receive the other teachers because he wanted to be the one. He made it about himself. Here he's telling them, stand together fighting for the gospel. Don't make it about yourself. Too many people today, as you see, in the, especially in the social media world that we live in, they want to make it about themselves. They want to be recognized. They wanted to, to build a name for themselves. It's not about your name. It's about the name of Jesus. That's the only name that matters. It's not about glory of self. It's only about the name of Jesus. And here you had a man that was dividing the unity of the church because he cared more about himself. If you read Jeremiah in the Old Testament, what happened was that Jeremiah had a companion, Barak. And the Lord spoke to Jeremiah to tell Barak this in Jeremiah 45, five, And do not seek great things for yourself. Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh. What is he telling them? Get off the path of self exaltation. Stop trying to promote yourself. Did you know a lot of the discouragement, a lot of the exhaustion, fatigue that happens in the lives of people is because they have the wrong mindset, obsessed with how they can advance themselves? And if you're always looking to advance yourself, you're going to end up frustrated you're going to end up disappointed and discouraged. The worldly power, the position, the prestige, all of those things are going to be swept away. The only thing that we must be concerned about, notice, is the furtherance of the gospel, that we would be united this way. So he talks about consistency. He speaks of cooperation together. But then notice from verse 28 to verse 30, he talks to them about their confidence. Stand together without fear. Verse 28 and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And don't be intimidated by those who oppose you. There are two things that stop the church and that hinder the work of God. Number one is division, and then number two is fear. Division and fear will always stop the Christian from obeying what the Lord wants to do. So he says, do not be terrified, or that another word for there is don't be panicked. Just because someone is opposing you doesn't mean that you need to be Panic. That word panic is almost as one describing a horse that is panicked or suddenly afraid from an unexpected movement. And you see the horse jerk and panic right away. Well, he's saying here, I know you're going through opposition, you're facing this. You should expect it and not panic by the threats. Especially when you determine determined to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're a heavenly citizen. People will try to discourage you and to stop you. And notice, do not be terrified, verse 28, by your adversaries. Who are your adversaries? The Bible tells us that our adversary is the world. The world wants to stop the Christian. The world, the flesh, your own flesh that wants to come and overwhelm you with temptation and sin. And what about the devil? Do not be afraid or terrified of your adversary, the devil. In fact, he's saying, don't flinch, don't panic, do not let fear control you. If you let fear control you, you'll never do what God wants you to do. If you let people intimidate you, then you'll never be obedient to the calling of God on your life. There are too many times that we don't do what God wants us to do because we're more concerned about the opinions of what other people will say. And just think about it, whose opinion matters more, theirs or God's? Think about what God is calling you to do. Don't let them scare you by their tactics. In fact, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? A great and an effective door is opened up to me. But notice, there's many adversaries. That means there are many people that are going to come against me. In fact, the opposition oftentimes is a confirmation that I'm doing the very thing that God wants me to do. So he says here, again, do not be terrified by your adversaries. In fact, how should you respond? adversaries with joy (laughs) because the moment that your spiritual enemies fail to make you afraid notice when people no longer are able to make you afraid they fail completely because fear and intimidation is the only thing they have over you so here he's saying don't give the enemy power over your life somebody today needs to hear that don't give the enemy power over your life you know what fear is going to do It's going to paralyze you and cripple you so that you're not obedient. So this is exactly what he's saying. And in fact, notice the opposition is a proof or it's a sign that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. Notice verse 28, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation that is from God. What is this? It is a proof, a sign that they're gonna be judged. When they oppose you, they identify themselves as opposing God's work and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a sign that they are headed to destruction. But to you, it's a sign of salvation. It's a sign of deliverance that by your boldness, by your confidence in Christ, you will be delivered. Now notice Paul's focus, Paul's mind there in verse 27 and 28 is one that he was so focused that he didn't let those things bother him. There are so many times we're doing something for the Lord and then you hear someone talking bad about you. And notice what happens. What do you want to do? As soon as you hear someone talk, you want to, you know, let me call them. I'll tell them mine. I'll let them know. Or you want to defend yourself so quickly. Or you're so bothered that it distracts you from what God actually called you to do. Here he's saying, don't let that distract you. Don't let that now lose your focus from what God is telling you that you should move into. In fact, he's saying, don't be easily offended by them, distracted, or upset by your enemies. Don't be easily offended, distracted by those that don't like you. In fact, what did Jesus say in regards to fearing man? Matthew ten twenty eight. he says, And don't fear those who kill the body, it can kill the soul. Don't, what can they do? They can just take your life. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy the soul, the body, in hell. The only one that you should fear is God. And when you fear God, let me tell you, you have nothing else to fear. Because you fear the Lord. So when we stand together, when we stay together, when we strive together, we are now in a united front that we can draw the line between our spiritual enemies and the victories that we have in Christ Jesus. And there he teaches us not only to stand, to share, to strive, but also to suffer Verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now this is the verse that we don't necessarily like to write on the fridge. We usually like to write the verse that's filled with blessing. But he says here now, it has been granted on behalf of Christ or for Christ's sake. You have the privilege. Notice this today. You have a privilege by God, not only to believe in him. Not only it's been granted to you, the grace of God has given you the opportunity by his unmerited favor to believe in him, but also you have the privilege to suffer for his sake. What does the Bible tell us? And all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what will they do? Suffer persecution. The world will not like you. The unbeliever will not like you. Your family will turn their back on you. The Bible says that your enemies will be those of their own home. Your co-workers will speak even bad about you. In fact, it says that word granted. Would you circle the word granted in your Bible, verse 29? It's the same word that he uses when he describes God's grace or charis. And he says that he sees suffering or hardship as a part of a gift or God's grace, which brings glory to God through our lives. There's so many times that we shy away from suffering. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to accept suffering in our lives. But here he's saying, I want you to understand that for Christ's sake, suffering, God can be glorified through your suffering. That you should receive and accept everything that he brings into your life willingly in order for you to be a tool and an instrument in suffering for the glory of God. I want you to know this. Number one, God ministers you in the moment of suffering would you write that down god will minister to you in the moment of suffering in first peter 5 10 peter tells the church that was suffering but may the god of grace who called you into his eternal glory by christ jesus after you have suffered a while i love that part after you've suffered for a little while you may find yourself in a season of suffering i want you to know it's just a little while. It's just temporary. And he says, after, what comes after is that God, by his grace, will give you strength. Notice, he's going to minister to you, and that he's going to perfect you, mature you. He's going to establish you. He's going to now strengthen you and settle you. Some of us here want to be settled by his feet. Strengthen. Well, notice this. That is what God does as he ministers to you in suffering. But he also enables you to rejoice while you're suffering. Where people can look at your life and they said, I don't understand how that person has joy. They're sick or they don't have a job. They're going through a divorce. They're going through a hard time at work. How do they have joy? 1 Peter 4.12, he enables us to rejoice. It says, beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. Don't think something abnormal has happened. <laughs> as though some thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are a partaker of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy that you are able to partake in the suffering with Christ Jesus. Would you rejoice that you're able to partake in the denial of self to identify with Jesus and it brings him glory, now think about the disciples in the book of Acts. What happened to them? They were threatened, Acts chapter 5. And then they were beaten in Acts chapter 5. And after they let them go, you know what the Bible says? It describes them this way. I don't know about you. If you were ever beaten and threatened, I, I, it will be difficult to leave happy. But it says that the disciples left this way, Acts 5.41. They departed from the presence of the council. This is how they left. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were rejoicing. Just think about that. They were threatened, and they were beaten, and they were sent off. And notice what the attitude was. They were rejoicing. Can you believe it, guys? We just got beat up for Jesus. All right. They were counted worthy that the enemy came against them because they were living lives of holiness. They were living lives of holiness, you know, so many times people get scared of spiritual warfare. I was with Pastor Jeff recently, and he was talking about spiritual warfare to someone, and he said, you know, if the spiritual warfare comes, don't be scared. Be scared if it doesn't come. <laughs> be scared when it doesn't come, because that means you're doing something wrong. It's so important that we know this. You know, the church today is so catered to, we're so comfortable, that everything we believe everything is for ourselves. You come to church, you think it's for you. And in fact, we're so catered to and comfortable, we're not used to suffering. Because everything is given to us. We come to church and someone takes our seat. We, we've been sitting there for 15 years. I'm suffering for his name. Someone took my seat today at church. I can't believe it. That's where I don't think, no, Lord, I'm suffering for you today at church. We, we, those are the kind of things we suffer. But he's saying, I want you to know that if they mistreated Christ, they'll mistreat you too. If they talk bad about Jesus, don't be surprised. They're going to talk bad about you too. <laughs> don't be I had A pastor calling me from LA recently. Hey, Art, tell them to stop talking bad about me. <laughs> I said, who cares? <laughs> Let your eyes be on Jesus Christ. He's the only one that matters. Do you don't think that if they came against him, they're going to come against you? In John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, know this, it hated me first. (laughs) It hated me first. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Blessed are you when they revile and they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my name's sake. The things that people say may not even be true oh, what a blessed man that person is who gets to suffer for his name's sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They persecuted those that were walking in righteousness before you. So don't be intimidated. Don't let man intimidate you. If you have a calling on your life, don't let anyone intimidate you by who they say they are. But what they say they have, what kind of power they have over you, nobody has power over you. You know who has power over? Only the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only one that should be over you. That we should experience the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I had a man come up to me after first service in the foyer, tears in his eyes, and said, that message was for me. I think I'm about to lose my job because I've been telling people uh, I'm a school teacher about Jesus Christ in the public school system. But he says, but I glory in all things because I'd rather do that than anything else. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus taught us how to suffer. Jesus taught us how to suffer. 1 Peter 2.19, would you note this? For, it, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. He's an example of suffering, that you should follow his steps. When you're suffering, don't complain, don't gripe, don't blame people. Notice, who committed no sin nor deceit was found in his mouth. Notice, he, this is what an example he gave us. People were speaking bad about Jesus. He did nothing wrong. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't say, well, let me tell you my side of the story you don't have to defend yourself. You know what? Just let God defend you. He didn't revile in return when he suffered. Notice what he did. He didn't threaten people. How many times have we, when we suffer, what do we do? You know what? If that doesn't change, I'm out. <laughs> you know what? That's you know what's what, what's speaking when you say that. Your pride. Your flesh. That's your ego, right there. When he suffered, you know what he, what Jesus did. He endured. Suffering. We need to learn how to endure suffering. Nothing in life is easy. Ministry is not easy. Ministry is not supposed to be easy. Nothing worthwhile is ever going to be easy. But we're learning to endure suffering. Notice he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And then finally, verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now I'm struggling with you. Others having the same conflict together. We have the same difficult circumstances. The word conflict is that Greek word in where we get agonized. We're agonizing together. We're suffering together. Having the same circle the word same conflict. Why? Because Sane wants you to think that you are suffering alone in the battle. You're not. There are other people who are also suffering. We have to be very careful when we start to complain about what we're going through because there's always going to be somebody that's going through something worse. Keep your eyes on the Lord and endure suffering. Endure it. That's a godly thing to do. Every time you're attacked, every time you're opposed, there's always a spiritual way to answer carnality there's always a spiritual way to answer to carnality and notice what he says here in verse 30 which you saw in me that's the past and now here is in me that's the present i'm agonizing in the same conflict as you philippians he's saying and you saw that i have been agonizing i have been suffering and i'm still suffering what does this speak of in regards to paul He was persevering suffering. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He was enduring it. He was serving in much conflict. When he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he told them about his experience in Philippi. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, he says this, but even after we suffered, he talked about Macedonia, Philippi, before we were spitefully treated at Philippi. Notice, Before we were spitefully treated at Philippi, (laughs) Paul had no problem being wrongly treated. Paul had no problem being mistreated. That didn't change anything. That didn't change anything. He was still doing what God called him to do. You may be mistreated, you may be overlooked, they may speak against you, but notice are you still gonna be obedient? Are you still gonna be obedient? As you know, notice at Philippi, as you know, we were bold to God to speak with you, the gospel of God. Here it is, in much conflict. In much conflict. What does it say? We should grow in Christ through difficulties. We should depend upon the Lord who gives us everything that we need for battle. And you know what he's telling the Philippians there in verse 30? That if the Philippians had Paul's kind of conflict, because he says that in verse 30, Then they can also have Paul's joy and fruit in the midst of it. Today you may have conflict, but you can also have joy. Today you may have suffering, but also you can have deliverance. This is exactly what he's talking about, that we would experience the spiritual unity as we strive together, even in suffering, for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he teach us? That we are to stand, that we are to then share, that we are to strive, and that we are to suffer for Christ. But notice, none of those things are possible until you first surrender to him. And that's what we need to do, fully surrender to him. Don't kick against the goads. Don't fight again. What would happen to Saul of Tarsus when he was going on the road to Damascus? He was rebelling in, their, in his pride. And he was making it harder than it needed to be. You know why, oftentimes, ministry is so hard or oftentimes your life becomes so hard? Because you're making it harder than it needs to be. Because you haven't surrendered to the Lord. And some of us here, this is what we need to do surrender to the Lord, give it to God. Don't make it harder. Than it needs to be how do we do it we say lord we submit to you our pride we submit to you our ego and we're trusting in you alone can we pray lord heavenly father we come before you right now lord and we ask jesus that as we've come in today lord we understand we know that you are the only way to salvation We know that it's only through you, Jesus, that we can endure the difficult seasons in life as we look to you, as we're filled by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, today, if we have a conflict in our life, Lord, if there's a need and we need to submit it unto you, Lord, that we would do it now, that we would wait no longer, Your word says that we are to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. That we would cast them, that we would release those cares. If there's anybody here that that wants to cast their cares upon Christ today, that you say, you know what, I know that I need Jesus right now. In this struggle, in this season, that I need his help, his strength in order to endure. Would you just stand on your feet right where you are? Because I want to pray for you. That as you're going through something, you're saying, you know what? I need Jesus Christ. I need the Lord Jesus Christ to change my life, to transform my life, to give me strength. That I want to stand on a solid rock. I stand, I've been standing on something else too long. But today I want to stand on a solid rock by surrendering to Jesus. By putting my faith in Jesus Christ. My faith and my hope in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else works. Only Jesus works. Only Jesus is the answer to your problems. And do you have a problem that you say, you know what, I I need to give this to to Christ, but before I give the problem to Christ, I need to give my heart to Christ. As we sing this song, I'm going to invite you to just come forward if you stood. Because I'd like to pray for you today that the Lord would do that work in your life. As they come forward, church, let's encourage the body of Christ as God's doing a work in their life.
1: The sweetest friend, but holy lean on Jesus' name. and Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand
0: if you come forward would you repeat this prayer as we truly surrender to Christ right now giving him our life giving him our our heart, our mind, surrendering to him, knowing that only through him we have salvation, knowing that we need truly Jesus in our lives before anything else. Would you pray this with me, Lord Jesus? But I come before you today in my needs and in my suffering, knowing that you are the answer. world cannot give me any other answer. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation, for your grace. I repent of my sin, choosing to follow you, surrendering all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.